there's this little girl who's nine years old and she's moved a lot and she's just trying to find her way. I would give her some credit and say she was probably doing her best and doing what she thought it took to find her place in life. And she made mistakes, right? Choose the best way, but she learned from them. It's just sad that others had to be hurt in the process. This episode is brought to you by The Parlor Hair and Body Salon. With a quick reminder, it's okay to take time for yourself. Hi, I'm Chelsea. You're listening to Beyond the Picket Fence, where you're invited to take a break from keeping it together. Let's get real. The creator and co-host of the podcast Enlightened Motherhood invites us beyond her picket fence today, Emily Hamblin. Her podcast is for overwhelmed, stressed out mothers, especially those mothering neurodiverse children. After hearing about this other podcaster who lives in my very own town, I knew I wanted to connect. I started listening in to learn and see how she did things. While I was listening, she had said something off topic and besides the point about being kind of clickish when she was young and now being the polar opposite. Ben said, that's a whole different story. I won't go down that rabbit hole. Of course, me being me, I got stuck there. I did want to venture down that rabbit hole. So here she is today to explore that with us. And then of course, tell us her whole story. So how does one go from being clickish and not very kind to creating a community of inclusion for mothers? To set the stage, when Emily was young, she moved a lot. She even lived out of the country for some time. So here she is, Emily Hamblin. When I was in second grade, um, living in Maryland, I was the youngest of five and I had like these big buck teeth and I was super impulsive and hyperactive. And now I know I I probably had ADHD, but we didn't really know it. I was just kind of labeled like the annoying kid in class. And I didn't have very many friends. And I remember it was easy to pick on me when someone wanted a target. And so Uh I moved to Australia, had a clean slate, had a pretty good experience in school there, even though I was the American. And I came back to the exact same school in fourth grade two years later. But now I had an Australian accent and I lived in Australia. And so suddenly that like gave me this huge boost up the social ladder. And I like me of now would be like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) You know, I don't, I'm the same person as I was before, but me of a fourth grader, I was like, Ooh, I, I get to be cool now. And I remember one girl that reached out to me when I first moved there and we were friends. And then I learned like other people were picking on her. So I started to pick on her too. And that's probably one of the biggest things that I'm ashamed about is like that this girl who was me from second grade was now in fourth grade. And instead of reaching out and lifting her up that I like helped others push her down. And of course my memory is not super clear and I haven't tried to keep that present in my mind. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't even, I wish I knew how to contact. I don't even know who the girl is, but I would love to just reach out and be like, I'm so sorry. And I can't do that. But what I can do is try to pay it forward. And yeah. So are you willing to share like exactly what you guys are picking on her about or like that situation? Do you remember? I don't really remember. Just like, ew, Tasha and Uh avoiding her. I don't honestly remember. (laughs) But I mean, karma got me back because then in fifth grade, I was the new kid again in Colorado and the girls were okay with me, but 
every single boy in my class except for two. They called me the beaver because of my front teeth. <laughs> every so single sad. boy. Yeah, for the entire year. So I went into sixth grade, like not liking boys. Just like I did not enjoy being around males because they were stony to me for all of fifth grade. And then I played like the, oh, if you're friends with so-and-so, I can't be friends with you kind of thing in sixth and seventh grade to try to reclimb that social ladder. And I just regret all of it. I think my biggest clean slate was going to high school and just leaving all the middle school drama behind. Yes. I love how we're like the top dog in eighth grade and then you move to be a freshman and it's like, oh yeah, Yeah. it doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah. And around seventh or eighth grade also is when I started to care more about the gospel. And I realized that what I was doing was like, I was trying to climb this human letter of like social success and it, it wasn't working and it wasn't bringing any joy. And dragging others down or being unkind to others felt horrible. And it's something that I changed and I really, like, I get better the longer that I practice it, right? So this is how many, like, decades later and <laughs> I, I feel so much better. And so now I'm, like, not, repenting is the idea of turning away from, and that's totally what I did. I'm completely on the other side now. And when there's a new person at church, I'm like... I want to go and meet them. And when there's someone that feel, they look like they feel uncomfortable, maybe in a workout group. I'm like, this was just on Monday. There was a girl that looked a little bit uncomfortable. And so in between songs, I ran up, I'm like, Hey, I haven't met you. My name's Emily. And she turned and like shook my hand and held up for a good five seconds. And thank you. it just feels so much better. I was really interested at how Emily still carried this little bit of shame when we went back and she can't even remember exactly what she did. But that feeling of how she felt is what she remembers. Now, she is so opposite. And I wonder, is it because she's still trying to make up for that young self? Is this still something that haunts her? Is she always thinking about that in the back of her mind? I don't anymore. But when I sit there and I'm like, huh, I'm so different than I used to be. I think it's just who I've become now. And I I try to listen to my body and to my heart and to my mind a lot more. And I think... How does this feel? It feels so much better to reach out to someone who's different or struggling and to try to help them than it does to try to gain from their losses. It just feels so much better to lift others. So going back to the last time, going back to all of that, without judging yourself, obviously you look back and you feel like, I shouldn't have done that. That's so mean. But if you go back to that little girl in that little girl's shoes, like, Really, why do you think you did it? What did you think you were gaining from being mean? So if I make it someone else <laughs> and I think, okay, there's this little girl who's nine years old and she's moved a lot and she's just trying to find her way. I would give her some credit and say she was probably doing her best and doing what she thought it took to find her place in life. And she made mistakes, right? She didn't choose the best way, but she learned from them. It's just sad that others had to be hurt in the process. Yeah. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. I just like that saying, hurting people hurt people. Yeah. So I just think, because that's what it did when I listened to one of your episodes. You said something about like, I used to be quickie. And then like, we're like, that's a different story. We're not going down that rabbit hole. And I was like, oh, I do (laughs) want to go down that rabbit hole. (laughs) So I'm glad that you hopefully can give yourself 
grace and move past that. So obviously that cannot be the bulk of your story. So that's just a preface. So Yeah, that's before adolescence. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like your childhood. And then yeah. how did life go on? So you went to high school and how did life go on from there? High school was kind of interesting. So my sister that's just older than me, she got pregnant my sophomore year of high school when she was in her senior year of high school. And there was, of course, a lot of drama and everything surrounding that with a rebellious stage she went through. By the way, she gave me permission to to say this. All good. (laughs) Emily is the youngest of five kids. Watching her sister go through all the drama surrounding that situation created some of Emily's inner narrative. She had to make sure she did everything right and have it all figured out. It kind of kicked me into like a super type A hyperdrive personality because as I see her and she's not quite sure if she's even going to graduate high school, doesn't really have plans. So I'm 15 and in 10th grade and I'm like, okay, let's choose my college. Let's choose my major. And I want a scholarship. So I'm going to start getting straight A's. So I like hit the grind. And I was the kid that at lunch, I'd be doing my homework. And before school, I'm doing my homework because I also had this ADHD to manage. And so, which I didn't know, I was completely disorganized, but I wanted the straight A's and I became like obsessive over it. And so I chose, okay, I'm going to go to Ricks College and I'm going to, what do I major in? And I'm like having this internal battle at 15. And now I'm like, goodness, girl, you had a few years to choose. (laughs) But at the time I felt like I had to choose because I wanted to be grounded and I didn't want to be wishy-washy. So Ricks became BYU-Idaho and I was like, even better. And I just kind of set my sight on it. And I ended up graduating with honors and I did go to BYU-Idaho and I did major in my Spanish education. And I just stayed on this train the whole time. I was like, I'm going to be the first one in my family to get my college degree and I'm not going to let anything stop me. And I plowed straight through and I worked through and people would be like, hey, what you doing this weekend? And I'd be like, well, I'm going to the library. I mean, what are you doing? Aren't we in college? (laughs) Do you regret that? Do you regret any of that? I think I could have relaxed, but, you know, as opposed to the childhood thing where I really regret having drug other people into my issues, at least this time it was, you know, it's just me. (laughs) It's hard for me to say, like, I think I should have relaxed and enjoyed things a little bit more, but at the same time, it turned out just fine. And I learned a lot in the process. Like, yeah, not just like, academics, really... but did you get a scholarship? I got a scholarship. I graduated debt free. My gosh. Okay. This is amazing. Yeah. And then I graduated it just a month before my 22nd birthday. And I was able to start teaching college just two weeks later. I was teaching at BYU Idaho part time as an adjunct professor. Wow. But, and, that, and you hear me say I'm a recovering perfectionist and a former mm-hmm. type A personality. This is the part that I'm talking about. I was like, focused. I just had my eye on that goal and nothing was stopping me from getting it. So it doesn't seem like that is really, I mean, maybe you missed out on some, a little bit of fun, but it doesn't seem like it was a pain point at that point. So when did the type A personality become a problem for you? So I got married about a year after graduating and we moved down to go to graduate school at the University of Arizona. And Um, But we also had our first baby. Emily was pregnant her first semester, doing prerequisites for the graduate program and then had the baby, all while they were still working part-time to try to graduate debt-free. And remember, she was still teaching Spanish. That's a lot on one plate. Not to mention, even before all of this, she had experienced a miscarriage. About a year after we got married, I had my first miscarriage. 
And then I had a season of infertility when we couldn't get pregnant again and where I didn't know if I could ever have children. And that was such a hard time. I just remember every month just crying, not sure if I could ever have kids. And it's something that I felt in my heart, my mind, my body, like I told you, listening to myself, I knew I always wanted and my husband wanted. And that was really hard. And this child came and we were like, okay, time to give you all this love we've been storing up for the past year. And he was such a joy. But then suddenly we're balancing both of us working and in grad school, which is difficult just in itself, and showering this little child with love. And I realized then I actually can't do absolutely everything. Sometimes I'm just going to have to do good enough. And Mm. it's going to be okay because it's either do good enough or I drop out. (laughs) Or I put my kid in daycare and I didn't want any of those things. Like no judgment of people that drop out in that situation or that put their kid in daycare. But for me, I didn't want either. So I had to start settling. Okay, I won't have time to read absolutely every word of this article before class. So I'm just going to have to deal with skimming through and getting the gist kind of thing. Yeah. Was that hard for you? It was really hard, but I I think it was a blessing and it set me up for the future, like letting go of perfection, which is something that I advocate highly for now. So real quick, we just kind of breezed over it. Did you say before you had kids, you had a miscarriage and then infertility? Yes. So... We had one miscarriage before him, and then we had a season of not being able to be pregnant. And I actually just was reviewing journals lately, and my husband's grandfather gave me a blessing during that really, really hard time. And he blessed us that we would have a healthy child delivered full term. And nine months to the day later was when we had our first child full term healthy. I got goosebumps. (laughs) Without IVF or anything? Yeah. And he is, I think all of my children are miracles, but he is like, we don't know how he's here because what we, well, there's things we found out later that we didn't know then, but my first trimester with him, I was bleeding so much. And I don't know if listeners not want TMI, but it was just, it was so excessive. And the physical things I was going through, like I would go to the doctor and describe them and he would be like, well, you might've lost the baby. And then he'd take an ultrasound and be like, there's still a heartbeat. And it was months and months of that. I, and they kept saying bed rest won't help. But me at the time, I was just like, at this point we were in BYU Provo and my husband and I were taking an intensive Arabic unit that they offer during the summer there. Wow. And yeah, it was, it was really fun, but really intense. And at this point I was like, I just need to stop everything. And so I put myself on modified bed rest and I just kind of stayed home. And that was depressing (laughs) to go from like the busy busy always doing like teaching college and I'm in this intensive Arabic and now I'm like sitting at home scrolling through Facebook for hours a day Mm. and it was really difficult but I'm not sure that the bed rest helped I think it was just kind of coincidence that that child somehow made it and second trimester rolled around and everything cleared up and he was healthy from then until delivery. And so we just thought, oh, it was maybe a like a small tear in the uterus or in the placenta or something. No big deal. We were sure we could have more healthy kids, but we went on to so when he was like a year and a half old, we were like, yeah, let's let's try again. This will be good timing. I'll be about done with graduate school by the time the baby's born. And we miscarried that one and I was like, what is this? Most like most women will experience 
a miscarriage or a complicated pregnancy. And I'm like, this is my third in a row. <laughs> like this isn't Wait, supposed to happen. Third and third, third complicated. Yeah. Cause I had a miscarriage, then a complicated pregnancy. And so I convinced my midwife to do all the testing to figure out what was going on. She's like, it, it looks like it's just a fluke. You can try again. Just a fluke. I don't think we as humans should ever call ourselves a loser or be mean to ourselves. The amount of stories that I'm learning about where pregnancies were miscarried is too much to bear. If you're alive and hearing this podcast, you've won, at the minimum, one huge battle, which is just getting to live. Congratulations, you won. You are a miracle. And if you're in the thick of processing the grief of a miscarriage, I encourage you to listen to the episode called The Hume's Little Homestead. And then follow her journey through her live coaching calls as she lets us be part of her healing process. Those are Monday nights around 11 p.m. on her Facebook. And it's just so interesting to watch her process that. You know, there's not enough people talking about this subject. So Emily had one miscarriage, a complicated pregnancy, and then another miscarriage. And then I was like, oh my goodness. So we we moved and there's a naturopath that's a friend of the family that I, I trust. He's very competent. And so I went to him and was like, hey, have you worked with this? And he said, yes. And he sent me these progesterone creams and recommended. He's like, okay, this, this should do it for you. And I did baby aspirin. And he said, I've seen great success with this. And I know of many other moms that have had great success in a similar situation. So we tried it. And then we miscarried that baby also. Then I went to another really competent naturopath who we had met at our new home. And she told me like she was pretty sure that she had what it would take for us to have a healthy pregnancy and baby again. Mm-hmm. So I did, I followed everything to the T and we miscarried that baby too. It was, those were such dark years. Not only do you experience the loss of each child, you still have the hormones of postpartum, the baby blues, and all of that but no child to cuddle. Postpartum is hard for me regardless, but in those situations. Did you have postpartum after your first son? I did. Yeah, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was full on depression, just a really dark feeling Mm -hmm. for about six weeks. So altogether, if I counted right, is that six miscarriages or six complicated pregnancies? Six miscarriages. We had a miscarriage, then a complicated pregnancy, and then five miscarriages in a row. Yeah. So I was about done. (laughs) I was like, I felt like we were supposed to have more children in our family. You know, there's question on whether or not those miscarriages are in the next life or not. Only one of them actually ended up having a heartbeat. The rest Mm -hmm. all stopped growing before they reached that point. I wouldn't find out till like, eight weeks or 12 weeks that the baby had stopped growing like four weeks. Did you always pass it naturally or did you ever have to get a DNC? I got one DNC and it was awful. That was the only child that ever had a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. So like, there's a question, are they my children in heaven or not? And I, I just say, I don't know. Like they were my losses that I loved. And, and I think the one with a heartbeat is probably as a minimum right, is waiting yeah, for us and watching over us. And uh-huh. um, Did you feel like there was something wrong with you? I feel like sometimes that's where people's minds go. Well, it's, I mean, it's obvious that there was something wrong with me. 
<laughs> no, no one else had planned. <laughs> but physically, right, there was something going on. We just hadn't figured out. I didn't think that there was spiritually something wrong with me or, or just, okay. I knew that physically there was something going on that wasn't normal and I wanted so much to figure it out. Yeah. You didn't take it personally. Like, like there's no. something wrong with me. I'm not like a normal designed woman. I don't know. Like no. the reason I asked that question is because when I found out that Jackson had heart problems, it was really difficult for me to accept that like just God made him that way. And it was very much like, well, my body made him. And I took medicine. I shouldn't have taken the medicine. And I would like go out four willing. I shouldn't have gone for like, I just put a lot of pressure on myself. So I just asked that question in case, just to see, because I feel like some women do go there, but it sounds like you had a very. I think that that's normal. Like once I was six hours late on using my progesterone cream. And so then of course I'm like, did that cause the miscarriage? But looking back, I know it didn't just because of what we experienced going forward. But at the time, yeah, I think it's normal to self-doubt and question, but I really think if you can just tell yourself, like, I'm doing my best and I'm trusting God to the best and I'm trying to find all the knowledge I can, I'm doing my best. Let's release the guilt of the things that I don't know. That is amazing. You should love yourself for that outlook because that probably saved you some pain that you didn't need. <laughs> well, I had enough other pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like with all those hormones, I also know I wasn't always showing up as the way that I usually am. And so I know like there's some friends that I lost that were really close friends and they were like, you're just not making the time to reach out to me or to like show that you're investing in this friendship. And I was just like, you have no idea what I'm going through. You have no idea what others are going through. I have to admit, sometimes I am not the greatest friend. Let me rephrase. I'm not always the best at meeting others' ideal of a great friend. So let's talk about this for a second. I just have to say, as a person who often forgets to check in on my friends, humans are not mind readers. If you need help or support, it is your responsibility to call your friend and clearly state your needs. However, I recently had a friend get angry with me because I really haven't been a great friend lately. One, admittedly, I am thinking about my podcast like 24-7. It's probably unhealthy, <laughs> but it's hard for me to figure all of this out and it's new and exciting. Number two, my mental health is really on the mend. I honestly am not thinking about my friend's needs because I can barely meet my children's needs, my husband's needs, and my own needs right now. And I think that's okay, but my friend isn't wrong. I haven't been there for her. I'm so grateful she told me because now I can be more mindful of those things and I choose to be a more mindful friend. Yes, it was really hard to hear and we both said our pieces and we are totally fine now. I guess what I'm trying to say is state your feelings and your needs, do what is best for you and give yourself and others grace. Giving grace doesn't always mean just let your needs fall by the wayside. It just means make your decisions from a loving place. I was like, I don't have the emotional reserves to meet whatever need that you have that you haven't even told me about until I didn't meet it. And I'm really sorry it didn't work out. But it's kind of the idea of be yourself and your tribe will find you because I have other friends from that time. And they were like, it's fine. Like, I'm here for you when, when you're ready. And yes. it kind of worked out that. The people that weren't good fits to stay in my life, they went and found their tribe. Yep. And I don't well, hold any malice to them. 
just solidarity for mamas that are experiencing something similar, I guess. Yeah. So how long was that time span of the six miscarriages? After the birth of my son, he was four and a half when we finally had a healthy baby. And so three and a half years, three years. Wow. Like looking back, I'm like, oh, it's fine. Everything worked out. But at the time, it didn't feel like it. It was it was like, is this ever going to work out? Are we done? Can I just give up? And I I don't blame if any mom like feels like I'm just going to keep miscarrying and I'm done. I wouldn't say anything is wrong with her. I would just say it's a personal decision. And I was close to doing that. But for us personally, I just felt like we were supposed to have more children. And so... I was really borderline giving up, but I'm like, okay. And then I pulled out my former type A personality. I'm like, let's do this. Okay. We're going to have a kid. What are my options? Okay. So I can go to a fertility specialist. We can adopt internationally. We can adopt domestically and we can adopt through foster care. I started to explore all four options, really heavy, really obsessively almost and found a fertility specialist in Phoenix who is amazing. And I found out that international and domestic adoption wouldn't be the best options for us right now. And then I started to contact all sorts of foster care agencies to look into that. At the time, they were living on the Navajo reservation. Reservations are generally out in the middle of nowhere, kind of. And due to that, no one wanted to drive out that far, and nothing really panned out. Eventually, she was able to certify through the Navajo tribe and ultimately was able to foster. But before that, I also pursued the fertility specialist. And we went and he was like, oh, this is an easy case. It's like, this is, yeah, I can help you have a baby. And we were like, wait, what? So what do we need to do IVF? Or, and he was like, you know, um, all of these tests have come back normal. So I'm just going to guess at what it could be. And we're going to make a lot of guesses and maybe one of them will be right. So he had me on five different prescriptions and whew, they messed with me. <laughs> like hormones and steroids and um, blood thinning injection that was horrible horrible but that pregnancy was my seventh pregnancy and the first one that was healthy from conception through delivery yeah how did your older son like having a little brother um I think he liked having a little brother but he didn't like sharing our attention yeah especially because he had it for four years that's a long time yes and each miscarriage of course I would just go in like I'd pick him up out of his bed and just like hug him while he's sleeping (laughs) like at least I have you still Oh, that is so hard. After Isaac was born, did you have postpartum depression again? After Isaac was born, my husband and I kind of figured things out a little bit more. He was born at a time of year that was really, really beautiful weather where we lived. And so we made it a goal for me to go outside every single day. And sometimes it was just walking around the block. It was going to the birthday party around the street. I don't think I got it quite as hard. I also had a lot of help, Mm -hmm. which I hadn't had with my first. And I had a lot of people just stopping by or I would stop by their house and just get out. And the fact that Isaac was, he loved to be in the baby carrier. So we were always going to the park or bringing him somewhere, just wearing him so that he would not be screaming. So (laughs) I don't remember having the baby blues as bad with him. During all those years trying to bring Isaac to the world, she had taken a break from working to enjoy her first son, and to try hard to have a healthy pregnancy. I was trying, like, I don't want any stress. I'm not going to work at all. I'm just going to play with my son, and we're just going to be home. And, like, I just tried everything. One pregnancy, I tried, like, okay, I'm going to move as little as possible. And I actually found out that 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 can actually increase your risk of miscarriage because you need that blood circulation. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) 
And another one, I was like, okay, we need to wait a good nine months in between pregnancies, give me full time to recover. And I was trying to be super healthy. And like, really, I just said, I really just needed the fertility specialist interventions. And I didn't know it, but I try, I was trying everything I could during that, that time. Wow. And I did, once we had Isaac, I accepted a position to help out with the Spanish programs at the high school where my husband was working on the Navajo reservation, but that was done from home. Mostly I would just go in once a week to check up on students. And then I did substitute teaching. Did you have to do the treatments again before for your next kid? Yeah. Every healthy pregnancy I've had since then, I was on the same prescription, right. whatever you call it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the cocktail of, of medications. Emily's pregnancy cocktail. <laughs> it was... They're never fun, but, you know, I had my children, so it was worth it. If you got lost, let me clear it all up. She has an 11-year-old, 7-year-old, almost 4-year-old, and almost 1-year-old. Three boys and a girl. So that's her outline of the childbearing years. (laughs) But let's go back to learn more about her fostering experience. My parents fostered kids when I was young, and I know that ain't no walk in the park. We ended up fostering 27 children over three and a half years. And it was, it was a beautiful experience. It was challenging at times, but those children were really precious. And it was, it was so rewarding to be able to give back and help children who, through no fault of their own, were going through something really, really, really hard. What kind of challenges are presented? My parents fostered, and I just remember, this is going to sound like horrible, but because my parents fostered, I promised myself I never would because it was so hard. It was so hard. I do not recommend it for the average person unless unless it's like wife and husband and God are all saying, yeah, we should do this 100%. I'm like, don't do it. Just wait. (laughs) If if any of those three aren't on board. Yeah. Because it is a lot. Are you allowed to talk about that? I can talk about it anonymously. So some of the example of like a hardest and then like a most rewarding well, I'll give you an easy hard and a hard hard. Okay, um, okay. The easy hearts, like we had one girl that she was so wonderful and she just she just wanted her mom, even though mom was unable to keep her safe from people that would cause her harm and mom was unable to be present because of her own addictions. She just wanted mom and she would cry for her all the time and she'd be having fun and doing normal little girl things and then she would just stop and break down and be like, I just want to do this with my mom. Or I brought her to McDonald's for a really fun, like, let's go play in the play pace and I'll get you a happy meal. And then she turned around and saw someone eating an ice cream cone. And she was like, my mom always got me an ice cream cone. I just want my mom. And then she didn't want to play. She just wanted to go home and cry. So I say that's an easy heart only because it's so easy to like, oh, like wrap your arms around her and do what you can. And I want to be there for you. The hard heart was years later, this was probably not coincidence. It was my last foster child. He was violent, hard because he would like me, but then I'm kind of in the mom role. And he had some unhealthy attachment with mom where his needs were not always met and sometimes met. And sometimes mom was using or dad was violent or whatever. And he had attachment disorder. And so he would lash out at me a lot because I was in the mother role and he was so violent and so out of control. And yeah, thinking back to that time is actually one of the reasons that I've started my coaching business right now. Cause I'm 
like, I need to help mom too. I just felt so at the end of my rope so often and so much guilt because I couldn't do everything and I didn't even know what to do. And the times when I would lose it and yell back at him, I never was violent back to him. But when I would like yell back and the guilt, I would feel like, oh, I just yelled at this child and he's going through all this trauma. And it was hard. Like, I remember one time my husband was out of town and he was being so violent and screaming. And I had four little children at the time to take care of. And I just remember being like, I'm about to lose control. And so I just grabbed him by the arm and I walked him outside and he's screaming and I'm holding him away so that he can't scratch me or kick me or his spit can't reach my face. Let's take a little break. Do you ever feel a little bit exhausted by your social media feed? Seeing everyone else's perfect moments and forget that they have a whole life going on behind the scenes? Don't you wish that there was a place to connect with people in a more authentic way? A place where the imperfection and messiness of life is celebrated? Well, if you want to connect with others like you, who are celebrate the good times and are real about the not-so-good times, then join us in the Beyond the Picket Fence Facebook group. It's our secret corner of the internet where you can escape all of the highlight reels and create more meaningful connections. Let's stop comparing and start being compassionate towards others and especially ourselves. Find it at facebook.com slash groups slash beyond the picket fence. Link also in the show notes. Can't wait to see you in there. We're back with Emily as she's walking the neighborhood with her crying baby on one hip and her out of control foster child being held by his hand far enough away to protect her own body. And like we just walk outside and we're in this nice little neighborhood full of really friendly, safe um, teachers. And I look for whose car is in the driveway. (laughs) (laughs) And next door was one of the nicest people. She's a grandma and she was a high school counselor. So totally equipped to handle trauma. And I saw her car in the driveway. So we walk next door and he's screaming and hitting me. And I'm holding another baby on my hip that's just crying and so scared over what's going on. And I just bring her doorbell and she answers the door. And I'm sitting there with trying not to lose it face on with screaming baby on hip and like violent child held away from my body. And she just looked at me and she went, what's going on? And I held out the screaming violent child. And I said, I need a break. And she was like, of course. How long am I allowed to keep him? How about I have him the rest of the day? And I was like, yes, please. And he was great for her and went in, she had him ice cream and watched movies. And yeah. I think that was an amazing response that you were able to hold it together to get him away. (laughs) Barely. We had that child for 11 months and I never fully understood how to handle his challenges. I had so many angels though, so many angels of people that would come and help just like that neighbor since most of his violent explosive episodes were towards me people at church would see it happening and they would just come and be like hey can I take him for a little bit and I'd be like wow <laughs> like so many people and a neighbor down the road would say hey let's trade kids for the day because she had kids that were not so good for her that were great for me and so we, wow. we did swaps a lot and just I call it countless angels that when you're doing what the Lord tells you to do and it's hard, if you keep on doing it, he'll send you help. Yeah. And did any of those experience further your uh, recovery from perfection? <laughs> I don't even remember trying for perfection at that point. <laughs> I was in survival mode for, for close to a solid year. But that was also one of the 
like foster care also is where I became super passionate for helping moms that are struggling also. Remember I had asked the most rewarding part? Well, due to the many foster homes in such a rural area, every foster home was to remain anonymous for everyone's safety. We had this kiddo for a long time and mom put herself into rehab and she would like, if I don't really want to give too many details, but Mm -hmm. if you, I knew her story and it was actually printed in a newspaper. And if you know her story, you would love her. One of my favorite quotes is Marjorie Hinckley. There isn't a person you wouldn't love if you could read their whole story. And oh my goodness, my heart just broke over and over for her. And this child just wanted his mom and she just wanted her son, but it wasn't safe. And so I would take and print out pictures and give them to the social worker to give to mom. And I made a little photo book of her son, just anything to encourage her to keep trying and to not give up because rehab can be hard. Yeah. And she ended up getting him back. And he was one of the few kids that still lived in our community. Most of them came from other communities and we'd see him around town, but they weren't supposed to know who we were. So we'd kind of like give him little like peaks in public and then try to ignore him. And (laughs) mom, at one point she came up to us. She's like, I figured it out. You were his foster parents. And then she gave me a hug and she said, thank you so much. You took care of my son when he needed it. And it was just so rewarding. She's like, I'm doing so much better and I'm going to therapy and I'm working on me and I'm, I'm going to be safe for him. But thank you for helping out while I needed that time. And I can only, like I say, oh, my life is so hard because I was teased in fifth grade. But like, really? Her life had to be so hard. And she yeah. went through it. She went through the fire and she came back and she got her son. So I know. And I think because of we, because I don't know if you relate to this, but I always feel a little bit guilty and minimize my pain because of all these other stories I'm hearing where I'm like, these people really have stories. My story is not even a story, but I have been told over and over by the spirit just that like I was given the amount of whatever I could handle, but also because of maybe the lack of trauma or whatever in my childhood, I am able to be in a place where I can share other people's story without it like triggering me or like there's a reason why some people get those stories and some people get the little stories like ours. (laughs) But it's not little. We cannot minimize. (laughs) Like six miscarriages. I don't know. And we don't need to we don't need to like okay, let's let's come up with a gauge to see how hard this trial was. And let's let's total up my trials against your trials and see who has the bigger tally. Like mm, we're all just experiencing hard things. Yeah, and hard is hard for whoever, whatever, you know. But the the last foster child that we had that was, speaking of hard, that was really, really challenging. That was the first time I was given permission to email mom. I had to set up a an anonymous email account and email her through that without giving any identifiable information. But she knew that I was the foster mom. And that was neat. I would send her weekly like pictures and inspirational quotes and I made several photo books and she ended up getting her children back and she said there were so many times that I was going to give up but I would just know that you believed in me still when I wasn't sure anyone did and you would show me that my children still wanted me even with all of the things they went through and wow that was just that was rewarding for me to keep going with this kid that's like 
picking up furniture and throwing it at me. I love Emily's heart. How incredible for these mothers to have someone in their corner. I don't want to be like, oh, I'm such this good person. Like, but it was so, it was just so amazing to be able to, even in little ways, be able to help someone who was going through something hard, regardless of what the heart is. And, you know, we, we help people and they can choose whether or not they receive it. And I know we can't control their actions, but it really was just so rewarding to see them come out on the other end. Not that I did everything, but to be a small piece in them becoming more of the mom that they wanted to become. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think that's amazing because sometimes it could be really easy to judge those types of situation without like what you said, looking at the other people's stories. So I think that's so beautiful. So you said that kind of inspired the podcast. What other stuff led to inspiring your podcast? I know that you've mentioned ADHD a few times. Did you want to talk about that? Yeah. So after we moved from the Navajo Nation, we moved down to the Phoenix area where we live now. And I started to have problems with my biological children. (laughs) My oldest, um, he's brilliant. He is very, very um, academically gifted, but he was struggling in so many other areas like anger management, emotional dysregulation, and impulsivity and things that I didn't know were all related to ADHD. I had no idea because I thought ADHD was just, you can't sit still or you can't pay attention. I didn't know it was this whole like package. (laughs) I made friends with the lady that's now my co-host, Ashley, and we just met at a workout group. And I don't honestly remember how we went from being like casual workout buddies to being close enough for me to tell her all of my parenting woes, but (laughs) I opened up to her like, I think it's because I overheard her talking to a mom about one of her children's explosive episodes. And I was like, Oh, someone that gets it. (laughs) So I like, Hey, I heard you had problems with your kids. I have problems with my kids. Can I tell you about them? And I told her a lot of the things I was struggling with. And she let me know, like, have you considered having him evaluated for ADHD? I said, no, there's no way he has ADHD. I mean, he was in kindergarten teaching himself how to add in the hundreds so that he could play Monopoly and life by himself. Wow. That was was a misconception, like because he's so smart, he couldn't have ADHD. Is that Yeah, if if he had ADHD, he couldn't sit down and read a book for three hours. He was reading the Harry Potter series in first grade. Like there's no way he could focus on a book if he had ADHD because kids with ADHD can't do that, right? Well, wrong. Like when I did get him evaluated, it was like, it took five minutes and she was like, oh yeah, like he definitely has ADHD. And then I learned more of what it is and it was this huge moment. And then learning how to handle it was a whole nother thing. Like I used to think when he would scream and like, this was years ago, but these explosive episodes that he would have, thankfully not violent like my foster child's, but they were still just loud and door slamming and you know we could all picture it but just thinking that he was doing it to try to get his way or thinking that he was purposefully trying to be bad or purposely just trying to manipulate me with them or whatever reason it kind of pitted me against him Uh and of course often I would end up losing it also and I would end up screaming back at him to try to get him to stop screaming right and Mm -hmm. of course that doesn't that doesn't usually work very well but (laughs) I didn't know what else to do 
And then, of course, the guilt, because then I just screamed at this child that I love so much. And yeah, mom guilt is yeah. real. <laughs> yeah. It was such a big aha moment for me when I realized he's throwing this fit or having this tantrum because he's unable to handle something that's going on right now. He doesn't have the skills necessary to handle it. He has, if you want, a learning disability in handling fast transitions or a learning disability. Uh, you know, this is a, I'm obviously I'm a teacher, but <laughs> a learning disability in handling when things don't go as expected. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, and suddenly when he had this huge meltdown because I wanted him to stop reading his book and brush his teeth and get ready for bed one day, I was able to stay calm. And that was my first time being able to stay calm during one of his explosions. And I was like, this is huge. <laughs> it was it was huge for me. And then understanding where he was coming from and why he was acting like that. And then, you know, it's been years in progress, getting to the root of my own. Now, why is this triggering me? And what do I need to do to stay calm? Because it was so hard to help him until I was working on myself first. Mm-hmm. So that first time that you stayed calm, you why do you feel like you were calm? Because you were thinking about how he felt? Yeah, because I realized he wasn't trying to manipulate me or get his way or you know, he wasn't necessarily thinking, hmm, I don't want to brush my teeth right now. I want to read my book. Maybe if I scream and slam doors and throw things and hit the wall and, and get really, really loud nonstop, maybe then my mom will let me keep reading my book and brushing my teeth, which I think might have been my old subconscious thoughts of why he was doing it. I realized that he was just, I can't handle what's going on in my head right now. And it's coming out as screaming. And it's coming out as hitting and it's coming out as slamming doors. I need help handling this right now. Wow. Like just I understanding a different perspective. So I was able to stay calm for the first time. And when he did finally calm down, he looked at me and he said, mom, it was just like, there was so much in my brain at once. I couldn't handle it. Mm-hmm. Explaining why he, why he reacted like that. And so once I understood that he wasn't doing it on purpose, I was then able to find skills to then help teach him skills to handle those kinds of moments. So what does that look like now? Oh, it's a work in progress. Um, (laughs) What does it look like when it's successful? (laughs) Well, he has them a lot less because I, I know when he's reading a really exciting book that first we need to transition out of that book. We use a lot of timers um, because the passage of time is something that's hard to judge with ADHD. We And I have this too. If I'm wrapped up in a really good book, you don't kind of realize that five minutes versus 25 minutes has passed. It's just time passed, but there's not really a gauge in your head. And so timers really help. Okay, we're going to set a timer. Just so you know, three minutes has passed. I'm going to set another one for three minutes. Do you think you can find a stopping spot in three minutes? That's helped a lot and letting him know what's going to go on. Okay. We have a routine for what happens during the days and he has a little bit more predictability and that helps to to scaffold him to prevent them a little bit more. But when they do happen, I'm able to stay calm and not take it personally and realize it's not a result of poor parenting. It's not my fault. It's not him trying to get at me. It's just him having a hard time Mm -hmm. and I help him calm down from them. And then we talk about it and later, like much later when he's calm. Okay, so about that, you know, what was going on and we're able to discuss it and learn from it together to maybe prevent it or better address it when it happens in the future. Wow, just like 
an incredible amount of work on your side of things. (laughs) (laughs) Not as much work as dealing with the explosions, though. I guess that's true. That's true. It's going to be hard either way. So which which one is the better hard? (laughs) I'll take the hard that has less contention in the home, for sure. Oh, I love that. And did you at some point realize that you had ADHD? Yeah, when he was being evaluated and diagnosed, going through the paperwork and circling the things for him, I was like, oh my goodness, I can, I could circle all of these for me too. I like ADHD not as like, okay, so this explains what's wrong with me, but more of, oh, this explains the way that I work. And now I understand myself better and I know how to better help myself or my child or, and it's never for my kids. And for me, it's never an excuse to not do something or to not do something well. It's just an explanation to help us know. Like I have a lot of alarms on my phone and I use timers and calendar reminders and not, you know, I'm not like, oh, I'm just going to forget because I have ADHD. It's like, no, I just need to do it this way. And the ADHD helps me know some tips on how to do it. Wow. This really helps me. I am kind of stuck in that mindset of like, I'm just always late because I love what I'm doing. My sister once told me that actually could be really disrespectful of someone else's time. So I like Emily's mindset of not letting this be an excuse, but letting it guide her to find tools that help her accomplish what she wants. For so long, it was, I'm always late. I'm just late. That's the way I am. And now I'm like, "Mm." it just takes a little bit more effort for me to get somewhere on time. So just that slight mind shift Mm, right there is helping me a lot. Like I might be late, but I don't have to always be late. And if I'm going to be on time, it's just going to take a little bit more effort and it's okay. And I actually think ADHD is are saying like, oh, why is there an increase in ADHD? And I'm like, "Mm, I think it's always been there. We're just recognizing it more. Yeah. I think it's really, really common actually. Really? And I don't think it's all bad. Like I am super creative and I can think outside of the box and it might be labeled as like impulsivity, but I'm really spontaneous where I can be with the kids suddenly. Hey, let's have a water party in the backyard right now. Let's go. And it's a lot of fun. Like mm-hmm. and adaptable, of, like pretty adaptable to yeah. things, I think. And right now I'm an early childhood educator and it makes me a really fun early childhood educator. I am genuinely excited every day. Like we're going to play with slime today. And they're like, yes. And I'm like, yes, can I have some? <laughs> so this is crazy to think of that, that person, this, who you are now compared to like the 15 year old who was like, everything has to be straight, perfect in these yeah. type A lines. You know what I mean? Do you think that being type A back then was a way to try to really control oh, ADHD? I mean, it did control the ADHD. It was just a control thing for sure. I wanted to control my future. I wanted to control a lot that was going on in my life where I felt like a lot was out of control. So let me find what I can control and let me really control it. Yeah. I didn't know I had ADHD. So (laughs) it's funny how like we go from one opposite to the other opposite. You know what I mean? Like finding the balance of when to use those type A personality traits that help you, but not lock yourself in a box of perfection. Yes. Yeah. In Emily's podcast intro, she talks about how overwhelming motherhood can be. Even though we love our children so much, it can be really stressful being a mom. And she is looking to enlighten motherhood in all forms of the word. More light and knowledge and less heavy. All of the times that I have just felt at the end of my rope and really just overwhelmed and stressed out and I can't handle this, that 
we can enlighten that. We can enlightenment has a few different meanings. One can yeah. be like to shed light on. One can be to give knowledge to, and another one might be. Yeah, I like the light in there to make things less See, that's, happy. That's yeah. what I was thinking is I'm like, enlightened to me is like the real meaning of it is like to teach or to gain knowledge, right? But when I am listening to your podcast, I'm like, it feels like enlightenment feels like to make it lighter. To take a weight off of your shoulders. I yeah. love the play on words. Did you mean for it to be like that? Yes. Yeah, I love it. And my husband so, said, when you shed more light on your burdens, suddenly they become lighter. Yeah. So the play on words he has. Well, that makes me happy that I'm shedding so much light on everyone's burden. (laughs) And they become lighter. Yes, because we're all going to carry them together instead of just hiding them and carrying them alone. Emily was recently riding home from Disneyland with her family. She had a copy of the book, The Explosive Child. This is a book she'd been trying to read for years. Emily even reached out to her friend Ashley as like an accountability partner. Yet still the book wasn't getting read. This whole road trip, she had only read like two pages. Emily realized she needed more accountability. I remember thinking, I just need even more accountability now. So I texted Ashley and was like, I'm trying to think of a way to become more accountable. Maybe a blog. No, I don't want, like, I don't have time to sit and type and make sure I don't have typos and present it perfectly. And then my type A might come out again. And I was going through my options and I was like, what if I just do a podcast and on the podcast, I tell listeners that I'm going to review this book for them on episodes because I know I have this tendency that if people are depending on me, then I'm so much more likely to do it. Thanks to her so-called impulsive tendencies, she got the idea and within 24 hours, her first episode was up. We're just driving and the kids were calm at that point in time. And I was like, what do you think? He said, I think it's a great idea. I think you have a lot to share in a podcast. You've learned so much over the years and my experiences as an early childhood educator, helping out moms. And he was like, you have so much of your life experience and knowledge to give. He's like, that's a wonderful idea. And then the spirit hit me and was like, you need to do this. And then my ADHD impulsivity was like, you need to do it right now or it's not going to get done and you know it. (laughs) So I picked up my phone and I Google how to start a podcast. And then I just super impulsive within 24 hours, I heard my first episode up when it was recorded on my iPhone. She then invited her friend Ashley to be her co-host. And guess what? They finally read and reviewed The Explosive Child. We have, I think, three or four different podcast episodes on it. It was really good and it helped us so much. And we were both like, we should have done this years ago. We're so glad that we're getting it out now. And then we just kept thinking, okay, what else have we learned? Or do we want to study and learn to present to people that can help others that we wish we had known? Mm -hmm. And then it developed from there where the spirit told me, you need to do more to help moms, right? Like what you're doing is great, but you you need to go deeper. You need to do some one-on-one and get more in the trenches with them because you're still, like, I'm still in the thick of it. Yeah. I know what it's like. And I'm totally not going to judge you. (laughs) And I know that parenting expert might say this and one parent expert might say that and how confusing it can be. So I'm like, I'm right there with you and I know how to get through it. I've gotten through so much and let's do it together. So I started my coaching business and that was pretty impulsive. Also, it was like within a week from idea to website up and I'm announcing it on Facebook, maybe two. I may have given myself two weeks on that. And that was it. So we're we're just going from there. I, I say we're just building the airplane in the air. That is so cool. I think it's such an important 
thing right now because motherhood can be so heavy and lonely and difficult to figure out what, you know, you read one book and it says one thing and then you read another book and it says another thing. And then you're like, well, who's right? I like what you have said. Like you listen to yourself and your body and you figure out what's going to work for you and your, Mm -hmm. you and your family. I love what works for one kid with one set of parents in one family dynamic may or may not work in another situation. Like if you think of a toolbox, there's some tools that if you're working with tools, obviously I don't because I'm being a little vague on this. <laughs> but like my husband, he has, he uses his drill regularly. Like that's one of his go-to. You're going to use a screwdriver and a hammer quite often, but there's certain sizes of wrenches that are really good to have in your toolbox that you don't use as often. And so there's some things that I learned like, oh, these are good parenting tips. I'm going to put them in my toolbox and I'll try them out on my kids. And sometimes I'm like, wow, that worked amazing for this child. Like one of my kids, when he's screaming and melting down, if I do reflective listening, it's just saying back to him what he says to me, like, I don't want him to take my toys. And I just say, oh, you don't want him to take your toys? He goes, yes. I just have to repeat back sometimes five or six times, but you can see his whole body relax and he takes this big breath like I am being heard. But if I try that reflective listening with another kid, they're going to be like, stop saying what I'm saying. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of times, especially people, you know, you want to sell a book. So you say, this is the way to do it and buy my book and learn about Mm -hmm. it. Or people with really big Instagram accounts that I follow too, they'll say, make sure you never, ever, I don't know tell a child that they've had enough to eat. And I just read that this week and I sat there thinking like, what if they're like at a birthday party, like scarfing down candy and you're worried that they're going to lose it later. Mm -hmm. Then I actually don't think it for my kid. And I know that they don't have any body image issues. And I know that they're, we don't really talk about weight in my house at all or anything like that. So I don't think it's going to be triggering if I say, hey, don't you think you've had enough? And, and they might stop and think and listen to their body and go, you know, I probably have, right? Yeah. And so just being able to disagree with people or agree with people depending on what works for you, that's been really empowering also. I love that. I'm so excited about your podcast and I've been listening and I love this last one that I just listened to. You were talking about overcoming perfection and I think it's just beautiful. And I think you really are going to help so many moms. We could all be going through similar things, but what we're expecting to have come out of it by the end might change the way that we go through it. For example, there were housekeepers in hotels. They did an experiment and half one group of housekeepers, they told them the work that you're doing is great for your bodies. It's similar to going to the gym. It will help you be stronger and healthier and blah, blah, blah. And they put up like flyers in the break room, letting them know about all the great physical benefits of being a housekeeper at a hotel. And then the other group was the control, just normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They didn't have those things. They just were doing their um, housekeeping. And at the end of the experiment, I don't remember how long it was. The group that was told that this was good for your body, it would help you in all of these ways. They were stronger. They had lower blood pressure. They were losing weight. And they also, surprisingly, I think that they reported like better feelings towards their job. Wow. And it's amazing because they were doing pretty much the same thing. Mm -hmm. Right. But the group that had that mindset towards this is going to benefit me benefited. If you're a mother and you find yourself at the end of your rope, I invite you to listen to Emily's podcast and connect with her. 
I will link her podcast in the show notes. She has such a huge heart and is a gentle place to go for hope, encouragement, and practical tools. And with that, I asked, what do you wish people saw beyond your white picket fence? That is such a hard question, and I knew you'd be asking it, but I don't know if I still have the best answer. I think I would say for anything in my life that seems perfect, right, and I'll put perfect in quotes, know that it's not. (laughs) And for anything that seems imperfect, just know that I'm doing my best, right? And I think all of us are kind of in that space somewhere in between perfect on one side and doing our best on the other. We don't really have it where everything is perfect and everything is imperfect. We're somewhere in between and we're all just doing our best with that. And it's okay. I think it's exactly where we are supposed to be. We're not supposed to be completely unable to move forward and we're not supposed to be completely done and perfect already. That's kind of the point of this life. And I think it's a really, really good idea to keep learning and to keep growing and progressing. But I also think it's super important to have compassion with ourselves and with other people for the whole journey and to know we're we're all in this together. If there's someone that you think isn't having any problems, chances are that they are having problems. And for the person that you think has too many problems, I don't know, maybe just go and try to help them. My favorite quote that I already shared would be Marjorie Hinckley. There isn't a person you wouldn't love if you could read their whole story. Thanks for listening to another episode of Beyond the Picket Fence. Do you or someone you know have a story to share? Feel free to reach out to me through my Instagram, Facebook DMs, or through my website. And remember, be kind, because you never know what's going on for someone beyond the picket fence.